talk about a training for transformation. Training for transformation. I'm going to make a wild guess that there's something in every one of our lives that we would like to have transformed. Now, if you're here today and you're saying, not me, man, I've figured it all out. We celebrate you as the one and only, but we do celebrate you for that. But I think all of us have something we want to improve in, we want to grow in, we want some transformation in. And so we've been looking at the Word of God about creating transformation. And we've discovered over the last couple of weeks that the number one thing for transformation in our lives, after being born again, I don't want us to skip that, after being born again, there, there's no substitute for that. If you really could transform your life without Christ, I'm reminded of the scripture, what would it profit a person if they gained the whole world and lost their soul? What, what can a person give in exchange for their soul? It's, it's of eternal worth. And so, but after we become Christians, because listen to what happens when we become Christians. The Bible says old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. That we become new creatures or new creations in Christ Jesus. And that God actually implants in us this supernatural empowerment called grace. This supernatural empowerment called grace, which the Bible says grace gives us the ability to say no and to live upright and holy lives in a corrupt world. And so we have this infusion of grace that you might have noticed that you and I need to cooperate with. Because although we have that infusion of grace, the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to lead you into truth. He's going to show you things to come. He's actually, the, the, the word paraclete, which, is, which we call the Holy Spirit, means a helper or one called alongside to help. And so we have somebody that's been called alongside us to help. In fact, he is, as we kind of sang, He's before us, he's behind us, he's beside us, he's in us, he's upon us, the Holy Spirit. And so we have his enabling power. But now we have to take our minds and we have to look at God's word. This is what we spent a couple weeks on. Look at God's word. What does God's word say is truth? And then I have to begin to believe that what God says is true. And that's where real transformation takes place. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind to where the principles of God become our principles. Now, some people say, well, that can't happen because the Bible says in Isaiah that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But if you read it all in context, it says, let the wicked man forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Wicked man forsake his ways, the unrighteous man his thoughts. For my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Well, for wicked and unrighteous, then they aren't. But we are supposed to have the mind of Christ. We're supposed to think. We're supposed to have the same attitude, as Philippians says, that was in Christ Jesus. And so as we begin to understand the word and we begin to believe the word, that what God says about us is true, what God says we can do is true, what God says about transformation is true, then we start to experience some transformation because the truth will set us free, especially as James says, if we learn the truth and then start doing the truth. We find freedom in that. But we have some roadblocks, and it's just legitimately we do. Now, they're not insurmountable. I'm not here to, when I'm done with this, you're not going to go, well, I'll never be able to accomplish that then. Uh, they are totally uh, capable. We're capable in the Holy Spirit to overcome them. The first one is, is that we may have sat in church for many, many years, maybe many decades, and never really learned the Bible. We've learned highlights. You know, somebody comes and says, man, you've been a Christian for a long time. I'm a brand new Christian. What have you learned? Well, I've learned about prayer, and I've learned about forgiveness and I've learned about being forgiven I've learned about Jesus and his death burial and resurrection 
I've learned about Bible study. I've learned about this. And then if one of them says, good, you're the person. I need to pray. Teach me what you know about prayer. Uh, we're supposed to. Well, how, when, where, why? I don't know. Why? Because we've learned headlines instead of actually learning the word of God. Now, headlines are good, but you want some detail. And so we need to learn the word of God. So sometimes we don't really move forward in the word of God because we haven't really learned it. You know, we have sat around it a long time, but haven't really learned it. The second thing is that we are often led by our, our own belief system and our own feelings. And our feelings and what we believe ends up having supremacy over the word of God. And that will keep us from having transformation. Now, you and I have all done it. And here's usually how it's described. We see something that's clearly the scripture. Now, we're not talking some of this fringe or something that's debatable. We see something that's clearly the scripture, and we say, I know that's what the Bible says, but I've just always kind of thought, or I've just always kind of felt, or I've just always kind of believed. And so what we're saying is what I always kind of thought, felt, or believed is superior to what the word of God says. And so we stick with that. Or especially if you say, I had a grandfather who was the most godly man I ever knew. He, he preached for 50 years, and he, he said this. Well, I'm not denying that you might have had the most godly grandfather ever, but if he said something that doesn't line up with God's word, pick God's word. God's word is truth. God's word is truth. His word's forever settled in heaven. Uh, it, it just is. Let, let God be true and every man a liar. We, we actually are to transform our lives through the word of God. He sent his word and healed them. There's so much about the word and us believing the word. Another problem we have, and this is sad, this is really discouraging. Um, George Barna, who owns uh, and runs a, a research company, Barna Research Group, and has for decades, uh, deals with all kinds of Christian things. And his latest stat is that 9% of people who call themselves Christians and are actually involved in the Christian life, it's not just some, oh yeah, I believe in God, and they go on. They're actually involved in their Christian life, only 9% have a biblical worldview. Only 9% have a Christian worldview. Now, you may say, what's a worldview? It's how you view the world. The lenses through which you look at the world and you understand the world. Everyone has a worldview. I just want you to know that. Uh, if you have a toddler, they have a worldview. Their worldview is the whole world revolves around them. And that's, that is their worldview. Seriously, that's how they, they see the whole world. You, you think, oh, I don't know if that's true. Yes, it is. You're a toddler. They don't mind. They don't care if you work 15 hours and you've been asleep for 90 minutes. If they want to wake up and play, they're going to wake you up. They're not lying in bed thinking, you know, there's a whole big world other than me. You know, they're thinking, I am the world. And so they're, they, they have a worldview. And so if we took, what that means is if we were put together 100 people and we laid out 10 questions about the Bible, and again, not fringe ones or arguable ones or, you know, gray areas, but just good, 10 good, solid truths of God's word and of what Christianity is, only 9 out of 100 would actually say, I agree with all those. And I'll tell you what the other 91 are saying, same thing you and I have said at times. Well, I always kind of thought, and I kind of believe. Oh, a guy named Oswald Chambers wrote a devotional, a daily devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. You can have it sent to your email or log into the website for free. Uh, and if it's not, I never really did the research. If it's not the number one daily devotional in the world of all time, it's got to be up in the top two or three. He said something one day that so struck me that I actually saved it, and I look at it with regularity. 
Oswald Chambers said this, and I'll paraphrase a little bit what he's saying. He said, never let sympathy for yourself or others permit you to allow something in your life that is contrary to a holy God. Now, we do that. How many things are going on in our culture and world that we go, I know it doesn't line up with the word of God, but you know, I know somebody's involved in that. And they're just such wonderful people and so sweet and kind. If you knew their past and you knew what they went through, what are we doing? We're allowing something that does not line up with the holy God to be permitted because we have sympathy for someone else and we do it for ourselves too. Well, you just don't understand where I've come from. If you would know and I think and I believe. No, the, the word of God is forever settled in heaven. So we've got to keep working, get the word of God in our minds and in our hearts where we say, I believe the word. God is the author of the word. And especially for us who are believers in Christ, we see the Christian scriptures, the New Testament, revealing the thoughts and minds and hearts of Christ and of the faith that we hold dear. And he knows how to do life. He knows how to do life. I was in a, a grocery store the other day, and there was a mama pushing around a, look, she looked like she was about four years old, and she was singing to the top of her lungs as she went through the grocery store. We all live in a yellow submarine. Uh, and then she quit singing. I passed by and said, hey, you know, where, where's your song at? Well, then I saw Darlene. I said, there's a little girl around here. And then remember, she kicked back in, started singing, we all live in a yellow. Now, let me tell you this. This is what I think people do. I have no idea what it means that we all live in a yellow submarine, Okay. Now, what we could all do is we could philosophize about it. We could talk about it. We could say, I think, and in fact, if you look it up, I'm sure there's people who say, I think they're saying this, I think they're relating to that. Usually in that era, everybody believed everything had something to do with drugs. And maybe they were on drugs when they wrote that. I'm not sure. All I can tell you is, let's, let's think about this. McCartney and Lennon wrote the song. Lennon's gone now. But to understand what that song's about, wouldn't it make sense that it would go to the author? I mean, if I went to Paul McCartney and said, what were you guys thinking when you wrote this song? He would give me the, the best answer of anyone. Well, when we look at how to do life, who has the best answer of how to do life? The author of life. God Almighty. He has the best answer. And so instead of us become philosophers, well, you know, I just kind of think and kind of believe, and, and I think the world's like this and the world's like that. I can tell you, I said through a lot of co college philosophy classes, I actually enjoy them and find them interesting and stimulating and sometimes utterly idiotic. Just some of the conclusions that people come up to. And I thought, wow, I can't even believe that we even pondered that idea. So instead of philosophies, and by the way, God has great philosophies, but there's horrible philosophies too we got to go to the author of life i was telling darlene this morning I'm always one of my biggest burdens as a believer is that i run into people who whose lives are a wreck a wreck and when you talk to them about jesus you would think you're asking them to take a step downward in their life and i'm going oh my goodness the devil has so deceived people into thinking that that it'd be a step down to know Jesus. I mean, I, I, I get that, and I'm serious, just, just recently we were talking to somebody who has clearly been told the gospel all their lives, 
and their, their home life is a wreck, their marriage is a wreck, their health is a wreck, they're addicted to all kinds of stuff, but they won't yield to Jesus. What is there about that wreck that you so desperately want to hold on to? And so we need, we need to be people of prayer who help people get breakthroughs because the Bible says if the gospel, the good news of Jesus, be veiled or hidden, it be hidden to those who are perishing for the God of this world has blinded their eyes and their minds so they cannot see the glorious good news of Jesus. It's glorious good news. Mm. So when we get this truth and we begin to understand it, now we have to act upon it. I know you're saying, I knew there's a catch to this. Yes, there is. Here's the catch. We've got to be doers of the word, not hearers only. We're to be doers. We're to apply it. Now, I teach all the time, and I still believe it, that one of the best training grounds for our faith is just how we do life. I mean, as we do life with Christ, we learn to be people of prayer, people of trust, people of faith, people of hope, people of joy, people of goodness, people of kindness. We learn how to share our faith in Christ. I believe... I believe that's the primary way we do life. Even the Bible says, I'm not opposed to street evangelism at all, but when you look through the New Testament, you do not find the, the, the apostles trying to train everybody to be street evangelists, but they do say this, live such good lives among the pagans that they see your good life and they see your good deeds and they glorify God on the day he visits us. Other translations say that they'll come to you and ask, why do you have this hope within you? By the way, nothing wrong with evangelizing, street evangelizing, doing all that, but there's, there's a big swath of Christianity that if we just go live our life right and, and, and still be open for, for conversations, I think we'd make a big, big progress in the things of God. And so we have to act on this. We have to live this. We have a lifestyle of serving God, knowing God, and loving God. And when you do that and people see that authenticity, they're often drawn to it. So I want to think about us training ourselves for its transformation. I want to look at, at probably the master uh, trainer in the New Testament. That's the guy we mention all the time. We mention him all the time because he wrote more books of the New Testament than anybody else. And his name's Paul. And so Paul uh, was a master trainer, master equipper. Probably, in our, probably the cool word in word now is he was a, a spiritual life coach. You know, that's, that's the end thing now. So he, he was the ultimate spiritual life coach the ultimate Christian coach. And so I want to examine his life and see how he did things. Now, we all know this. I've done it. You've done it before we get too haughty. How many times have we done this, especially if you've got kids? Do as I say, not as I do. Okay, you know what I mean? You're smoking a cigarette. Kids, I don't want you ever to smoke, okay? I don't want you to tell any lies. Uh... Honey, there's someone on the phone for you. Tell them I'm not here. So anyway, I want you, you know, don't do as I do, do as I say. But it's much more powerful if we do and say things that line up together. So we're going to look at Paul's life. You know, he's going to teach some things. So let's see how he's living it. So we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? We all know that, right? Only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. What's he saying? If you're going to compete in something, then do it with at least the hope of winning. 
you know, at least train and equip thinking that, that maybe I could win this thing. You want, to, you want that kind of spirit, that kind of heart to win. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games, these games are probably Olympic games. When Paul wrote this, which is quite a long time ago, the Olympic games have been going on for 800 years. We've always been into athletics and, and sports and competition and all of that. And so he's addressing the games here. And he says, everyone who competes in the, strict, or in the games goes into what? Strict training. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Now he's going to say some stuff here. That's kind of incredible. They do it. Now, we ought to possibly do what? They, they do it. What's the it? Strict training. So it would not be wrong to read it like this. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They go into strict training to get a crown that will not last. Have you ever seen the old Greek or Roman crowns? There's a little laurel wreath around there. You know, the, you're wearing some, some foliage on your head. You know, you're wearing some leaves, and that's the crown. Now, we had the pleasure of getting sponsored by Lily Endowment to take a trip called the Footsteps of Paul, where we followed Paul around where he was in all these different places. And our, our tour guide, one of them knew all the Christian stuff, but one of them loved Jesus. And I tell you, there's a big difference, serious, between somebody who knows all the Christian stuff. He still was great, but she was awesome because she loved Jesus. And so we were in Greece, and she's got her Greek Bible, and she speaks Greek. That's her main language. And she, we're on this verse, and she says, listen to me. I want you to know this. Our, your translations say crown and crown, so you think of them alike, but don't think of them alike. They're training to get some, some plant life on their head. They're training to get something that in a very short time will wither away and turn into dust and disappear. But we, here's, here's the thing that, I'm not asking you to feel bad about this. I'll just feel bad for myself, okay? Let's read it. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They, do it through, they go into strict training to get a crown that will not last, but we go into strict training. Every time I read that, I, I have to feel like I need to apologize to God. Because how many of us really go into strict training? Paul's saying, but you know I have told you, just let me have the fantasy that you're all hanging on every word. Let me have the fantasy that you're going to take this message and you're going to study it out this week. and you're gonna do, Just let me have some ignorance there on that. And so Paul's saying, Paul, did you not know these people? You're saying, we believers go into strict training, which we should. We go into strict train to get a crown, not leaves, not a little laurel thing around our head. We, we get a crown made of some kind of imperishable metal that will last forever. So we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, since this is true, I'm working for a crown that will last forever. I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul is saying that I'm training my body. Now, you know this on a certain level, but I want to remind you, you are an eternal spirit. The real you is an eternal spirit. And if you're born again, your spirit has been made new by the Holy Spirit. So your body, the Bible teaches, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul's not talking bad about the body. Jesus didn't talk bad about the body. 
We need to get out of our head that our body's evil or awful or something. It's a container for our spirit. It's necessary here on this earth. If you don't have a body, you can't go tell somebody about Jesus. The body's a good thing. But Paul said, we've got to be careful because our body will end up bossing our spirit around. You said to yourself, I'm going to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and pray. Your spirit was willing. But when the alarm went off at 6, the rest of the verse came into your mind. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And your flesh told your spirit what it was going to do, and that was shut the alarm off and go back to sleep. Now, I have some recommendations for you, by the way, and I'm serious about this. If you're not a morning person and you've never been up before 7 a.m., then don't set your first goal to get up at 6. You know, you can fit prayer life somewhere else in and use some wisdom. Paul also said, I am a wise master builder. And so you need to be wise about how you're wired up and you still want to discipline your flesh, but you want to make sure that you're not going to just fail all the time because you're setting something up that you, you can't do or it's very hard to do. So Paul says, I make my body obey my born-again spirit so that after I preach to others, I will not be disqualified for the prize. Quickly, I just want to say this because there's a, uh, there's a really too large of a portion of the Christian world that believes that Paul was saying, I can't guarantee I'm even going to get to heaven. If I don't do everything right, if I don't keep competing wisely and keep going into strict training, I myself may be rejected and disqualified for heaven. That's not what he's saying. We know too much from his writings. He told us, he said, your salvation is a gift from God. It's by grace through faith, not of works. So no one can brag or boast about it. It's a gift from God. So he can't now be saying, I got to do these right works or I won't get to go to heaven. But I do believe there are rewards that God has for us that if we don't fulfill the requirements for the reward, it's not that we don't get heaven, but we don't get that reward. You know what I'm saying? You've competed with stuff, and if you did things right, then you might win and get the award you know Paul said this there is laid up for me this is Paul speaking about himself there's laid up for me a crown of life but not only for me but for all who long for Jesus's appearing there's a qualification there now we'll just make an assumption we all love Jesus we're all born again we're all going to heaven but if I talk to each one of you individually you may not be longing for Christ's return if I came in here and said, I just want you to know I had a visitation by Jesus, and Jesus is coming back this Friday. Some of you would go, first of all, if I ever say that, you need to have a long talk with me. But, but if, I, if I said that, some of you would be thinking, not this Friday. I mean, we've been saving up for three years. We've got a great trip planned for this fall. Can you wait till after that? Somebody else say, not this Friday. I mean... I just got engaged to be married next spring. I mean, I don't want to, you know. Somebody else says, I- I'm supposed to have a baby in three weeks. Don't, don't come yet. But at the end of the revelation, it says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So what would happen is this, is that you're not really longing for Jesus' return. So you would be disqualified for the crown. I d- I'm not sure if it's a literal one or a figurative one, but you would be disqualified for that crown. Does that make sense? It's not like, you're not going to go to heaven. If you weren't longing for his return, you're not going to go to heaven. It's not it, but you might be disqualified for a prize. So let's see how Paul trains his young intern, Timothy. We see how he's doing life. Let's see how how he wants his trainees to do life. 
have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Instead of that, rather, train yourself to be godly. Old myths, old wives' tales. And there's also something else I want to challenge us in. There are particular things in Scripture that are not clear and will never be clear that we could spend 10 years on and it doesn't matter. I'll give you one. I, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15, but don't hold me to that. People ask Paul, hold it, if we're, if we're going to have a body, what's it going to be like? And Paul starts talking about it, but if you read the whole thing, here's kind of his spirit behind it. Hey, guys, we could waste way too much time on this. All, there's, there's animal life, and they got a certain glory to their body. There's, there's celestial bodies, and, and the sun and the moon are different, and there's, there's terrestrial bodies. And he goes through this whole discourse, and he says, this, I, we don't know. We know that we're sown, our body is sown into the ground corruptible, and we're raised incorruptible. But we really don't know totally what it's going to be like. We know we're going to be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And Paul dedicates a little bit of time to that, but you won't find him talking about it anymore because at the end of the day, we're not really going to know. Again, fascinating. I love those topics. I'm just not going to invest my whole life into them because there's things we can learn to do. We can learn to pray. We can learn to share our faith. We can learn to trust. We can learn to forgive. We can learn to, to have hope. And we can learn to have joy. There's all kinds of things that we can have. And so I believe Paul would say to Timothy, don't get caught up in all this stuff. Instead, rather than train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for what? All things. Godliness has value for what? All things. So does godliness have value for your work life? Does godliness have value for your school life? Yes. Your home life, your health, your spiritual growth? Yes, 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 yes. That's what all means. Godliness has value for all things. And it has promise, it holds promise for both the present life and the life to come. See, that's why when people think serving Jesus would be a step downward, even though my life is miserable, they don't know the word. Jesus said, I have come. I'm the author of life. I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest measure, have it overflowing, have a rich and satisfying life. So we're supposed to have life. Now, you read your New Testament, and you may say to yourself, well, excuse me, Pastor, did I read right? But isn't it historically true that every apostle was murdered for their faith? Yes. Uh... That doesn't sound like life to me. I'll tell you, when you get to a point where you're so engrossed in Jesus, you say, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. He said, I'm at a crossroads here, and I'm not really sure what. I, I, I desire to stay with you and keep training you and equipping you because that would be profitable for you. But he said, my deepest desire, let me just bring it into raw language, my deepest desire is that I would be murdered for the cause of Christ and I could go be with Jesus. That was my deepest desire. My desire is to be with Christ, which is far better. And he did end up losing his, his head. He was beheaded for the cause of Christ. You say, well, what's that? That's not life, is it? Oh, it is when you've gotten to that deep a place in life. It is when sweet Stephen is saying, don't lay this sin to their charge as they stone him to death and his face shines like an angel and the heavens are open. It's life. It's life. So we're challenged to 
train ourselves in godliness, which has promise in this life and in the life to come. But here's the hard part about training, and, and I know this is deep, so hang with me here. The hard part about training is that sometimes it's hard. I know. Let that sink in. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard. One of the hard things about training is if you've never done something before, you need somebody to show you the way. If you've never done something before, you need a coach, you need a trainer, you need an equipper, you need at least a friend that's further down the road than you are who can help you grow. And so you need that. When when I was a um, freshman in high school, you know, their school passed freshman year when I was in high school. Some of you thought, I thought you, you guys used to graduate in sixth grade back then. No, I was not that old. And they built this, these tennis courts at, at our school. And they said, we're going to have a tennis team. Well, that's all fine and dandy, except none of us knew how to play tennis. You know, the, the, we'd never had a tennis court before. Now, me and some of my buddies, we had some little cheap tennis rackets. So we'd go down to the elementary school, and there were some teeter-totters there. Everybody remember teeter-totters? Yeah. I'm, I'm shocked at the things we let kids play on. But anyway, uh, teeter-totters, we squished them aside, and we would play tennis over that teeter-totter bar. That was my closest thing to tennis. And when I held a tennis racket, I held it like a hatchet. I whacked at everything like it was a hatchet. And then when I started working with the team, I found out there's something called a forehand grip and a backhand grip. And I thought, I didn't know there was anything other than the hatchet grip. You know, we, we needed a coach, and we got one. And although I never became a superstar in tennis, I can tell you this. I became pretty good at tennis from being horrible. How? Now, I'm not going to, was never going to, you know, be a grand champion of the world. But I enjoyed that for many, many years because I got a coach who helped me learn how to play the game. And then I practiced playing the game. And it brought me years and years and years of great joy. We, we have to have a couple things to be effective. There's two things we need for effectiveness. The first one is we need some time. I don't care what you do. This isn't just a spiritual thing. This is life. You, wanna, you want to uh, uh, be good at golf? First of all, if you want to be good at golf, just get that out of your head because you probably won't ever be good. Just, I, I want to learn to play better golf. Then it'll take a lot of time, and you'll have to find a lot of time. Or tennis or the piano violin you want to learn a new language it'll take time it'll take you some time so you got to have some time now you may say to yourself where am I going to find the time well first of all we always find time to do what we really like to do that's why you can come home and you know your spouse can say man we we need to we need to clean that garage out tonight and you go oh man I I don't have the energy I don't have the strength I don't have the time. Phone rings. Want to go play nine holes of golf? I'll be right there. What, what happened? You love golf. You don't love cleaning the garage. So you found time. You found the energy to do something that you like to do. Now, if you're saying, I don't really know where I'd find time. I haven't beat, I haven't beat us up for this for a long time. It's still about the same stat. The average American spends four hours a day in front of the TV set. Four hours a day, 28 hours a week. So if you took three hours of that, you still have 25 hours that you can spend in front of the TV set. You know, the average adult, by the way, you know how adults are always saying, these kids got their nose stuck in technology all the time. 
You know, a stat I read, I have a hard time believing it, but I just read it a couple weeks ago. The average adult spends 2.4 hours a day on Facebook. Well, kids aren't on Facebook. You talk to anybody that's 25 or younger, Facebook's for old people. You know, they're not on Facebook. So it's us adults who are on 2.4 hours a day on Facebook. So we got plenty of time. We just have to shift a little. We were, uh, my son Sean was home. We were watching some TV. Uh, he was home for Easter break, and we're watching some TV show. You know, they do, they do, do TV amazing. They've got great storylines, great actors. They just suck you right in. You know it? I'm going to let you in a little secret. It's not real. I want you to know that. It's not real. Uh, well, well, there are real spies in the world, and I watch James Bond. Okay, James Bond would be dead the first three minutes of any James Bond movie. I just want you to know that. It's not real. So we're sitting there watching something. I said to Sean, I said, he's our oldest boy. I said, you ever watch TV and just think to yourself, what a colossal waste of time. And he said, all the time. So since we had that reality, the TV was a colossal waste of time, guess what we did? We watched about two more hours of TV. We sat there and just kept watching it. You know, We got sucked right into some kind of drama that was on the TV set. That's all fantasy. So again, there's some time to unwind and relax. So there's a place where you can find some time. But then the second thing, we need is some dedication. We need time, we need dedication. Are we going to pay the price? Now, I can't hardly say the word pay the price. And those of you who have been around for a while say he talks about the same illustration every time. Well, it's just the only one to have. It's, it's Zig Ziglar. Never forget this. Zig Ziglar, Christian man, loved the Lord, traveled the globe as a motivational speaker, filled up stadiums. And he said he used to, for years and years and years, shout out to the congregation, the crowd, the audience, whatever. We've got to pay the price. And then one day he was thinking, he said, you know what? We don't really pay the price for success. We enjoy the benefits of success. We pay the price for failure. And so as we think about transformation, we could say, we've got to pay the price for transformation. Really, we're going to enjoy the benefits of transformation. We're going to pay the price for getting stuck. If you've ever been stuck for a while, you, you, you feel it. You're paying the price for it. And so we want to be free. But there is a certain price to pay. There's an incredible story in 1 Chronicles 21. David has done something he wasn't supposed to do. He has violated the law of God. His, his choicest advisors told him not to do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But he was king, so he went and did it anyway. And he violated the direct will of God concerning something. And guess what? The judgment of God came upon him and all of Israel. Man, I've said this before. If you could sin in a vacuum, go do it. But your sin affects everybody. It affects all your loved ones, all your friends, all your family, your co-workers, your classmates. It, it has a ripple effect. So he sinned, all of Israel suffering for it. And uh, the prophet tells David, he says, um, you need to make an emergency uh, sacrificial offering to God. And he said, the, this angel with a sword is at this threshing floor of, of Arona, or Ornan, depending on the why. Some translations use Arona and others Ornan, but they do, same person. And so David beats it over there, and he says, I, I need to buy your threshing floor. Because, and by the way, Ornan or Arona had seen the angel and his sword 
And so he knows this is the real deal, and it's serious. And so he tells Dave, you, you can have it. He said, have it, my Lord. Do whatever you please with it. And David says something so powerful that I want us to register in our hearts today. Let's look at it in First Chronicles twenty-one twenty-four. 24. Arona has just told him, you can have it. But King David replied to Arona, no, I insist on paying the full price. Isn't, isn't that amazing? I know Matt's a realtor. Any other realtors in the building? Any other realtors in here? I know we have a few that attend. Can you imagine telling somebody, I think I can get you a real deal on this? No. I want to pay maximum retail for this house. He says, I want to pay maximum retail, full price for this. Why? Here's why. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. Wow. I will not take for the Lord that which is yours, nor will I sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. Now, it's the human dilemma that we all want something for nothing. But Mama and Daddy have told us for years, you don't get something for nothing or for free. Yeah, you don't. You don't get it. Everything costs something. What we give to the Lord should cost us something. Probably a sporty way of saying it now is we, we need to have some skin in the game. You get serious about something when you've got something invested in it. And I believe, and you do too, that God is worth more than our leftovers, don't you? He's worth more than our leftovers. And sometimes, sadly, we don't even give him our leftovers. You know, we, we, we say, well, I don't know if I'm going to go to church or not. And I know you're here, so you can go, ooh, glad I showed up today. Uh, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to go to church or not. I, I don't know if I feel like it. What, what are we doing? I'm serious. We're giving God our leftovers. Now, I, I totally get it. You're on vacation. You don't feel well. I, I mean, there's some reasonable things. But we say, I just, I, I, won't, I won't even give him my leftover. I'm going to spend some time in prayer. I don't feel like it. I think I'll read the Bible. I don't feel like it. I, sometimes we don't even give our leftovers. So I guess it's a good place to start to at least start giving our leftovers. But here David says, I'm going to pay full price. It's going to cost me something what I'm going to give. Now, I don't say those things to shame us, although, quite frankly, I and you should be ashamed of those things, but I don't say it to shame us. I don't say it to berate us because, you know what I found out? Shame and berating people are not real good motivators. They motivate a little, but there's usually a little, oh, tension because of it. And so they're not really the best motivators. You can bark at people. You can make them feel bad. You can push them. Sounds like parenting, doesn't it? That's kind of what we, we do. We bark. We're going to make our kids behave, and I'm not opposed to disciplining our children. We're going to... Try to get them to do something they don't want to do. And that's what happens when we berate people and shame people. We're going to try to make them do what they don't want to do. But I think there's something higher than that. Motivation actually, I'm not opposed to motivation, but motivation actually pushes you generally. Pushes you to go out and do something. Pushes you to make something to, pushes you to make something happen. And I'm not opposed to that. But I think there's something better than that. 
inspiration. Well, isn't that the same? No. I, I believe inspiration draws us. You ever been around an inspirational person? You say, I, I'm in. You don't even know what we're doing yet. I don't care. I'm in, man. I can, I, 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 I got it. You know, I, I, I'm feeling inspired. I just I want to be a part of whatever this is. And God's so much like that. Oh, will he discipline us? Sure. Will he motivate us at times? Sure. But the bottom line is he draws to inspire us. To say, he, even, even in, there's a, a line in Revelation where, where the Lord's talking to, to um, John. And he says, come up higher. Yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to come up higher. I, I don't want to just be pushed. I want to be inspired to go after God. And you know what? Motivation sometimes pushes us to do what we really don't want to do, but inspiration draws us to do, guess what, what we really deep down do want to do. We want to know God. You want to know God. You may be here today and say, I don't even know if there is a God. There's eternity in your heart, my friend. God's planted something in you, and it'll draw you, and it'll draw you, and you won't be able to shake it. I'm telling you, God's the hound of heaven. He'll, he'll, he'll get after you. He'll, he'll draw and woo, and, and you'll go, and you'll try to avoid. Quit, quit, quit avoiding. Remember Jonah? God said, go this way, I'm going to go that way. You might as well just give in. Might as well just give in, do what God's called you to do, to serve him, to know him, to love him, and it'll be a life you'll love. Do you know the scriptures often refer to us as sheep? When I was thinking about this this week, I thought, motivation, inspiration. Motivation drives us, inspiration pulls us draws us. I started thinking about the analogy of how God calls a sheep. You know this about sheep. You don't drive sheep. You lead sheep. You drive cattle, but you don't drive sheep. You lead sheep. And Jesus is our good shepherd. He leads us beside still waters. He leads us to green pastures. He leads us. There's something inspiring about the life of Jesus. And so I want to encourage us. Let's allow God's word to inspire us, to draw us. There's something in us that we say we want to go deeper. We all want to go deeper. Next week I'm going to talk about uh, creating a um, a visit, a, a habitation, a, a, a place for God. That we, we want to create a place for God in our lives. And we're going to spend the month of, of May talking about spiritual disciplines. Things that we can do. Now, they're not things that we do that earn our salvation. They're not things that we do that God will look at us and say, oh, my, they're incredible. You know, they, they so impress me. No, the things we can do that draw us into a deeper walk with God. And so we're going to talk about creating a place for God to visit and not just visit but to abide. And then we're going to look at specific disciplines that we can all put into our lives. And we're not going to be champions of it by the end of the month of May, but we can get the journey started to put certain disciplines in our lives that Paul did and Timothy did, the people in the Word of God did, that drew them deeper and deeper into their walk with Jesus. And there's beautiful things. And I know that you want more of him.